Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade or the pot and poisoner curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world welcome to weird in the wade It's October 2005, a time when the news was dominated by the Iraq War, terrorism and hurricanes. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was top of the book charts, whilst in that October the first novel of the Twilight series was released. Push the Button by the Sugar Babes was number one in the UK, but what might make you feel really old is when I say that 2005 was 18 years ago and the iPhone was still two years away from launch. Social media wasn't really a thing yet and the words of the year compiled by the Oxford English Dictionary were wiki, sexting and quite delightfully this new word, podcast. Biggleswade in 2005 was a sleepy place, it really was. There was still a Woolworths, a greengrocer's and a hi-fi shop in the centre of town. You couldn't get food served in a pub between 3 and 7pm though. The new Asda Superstore on the site of the old brewery had just opened and the novel idea of a surfing cafe where you could drink coffee and get online via Wi-Fi was in its second year. Also, still open and in a prominent position on the high street were the offices of the Biggleswade Chronicle, a local newspaper that had been serving the community since the 1890s. And it was this local newspaper that broke the story on October the 21st, 2005, that a local man named Terence, who lived on Lime Tree Walk, had seen something very strange in the middle of the night in his back garden. Lime Tree Walk is a leafy street of neat post-war houses which forms one of the sides of a kind of triangle. In the centre of this triangle is an enclosed green space dotted with trees and shrubs which all the gardens on one side of the walk back onto. 
I don't know if Terence's house backed onto that enclosed green or not, but I wanted to point this out because these are streets with open spaces like this dotted around, along with lanes, alleyways and leafy cut-throughs. Places where people and animals can make swift and secret getaways. The other side of Lime Tree Walk doesn't have a green behind it, but it has one of these shrub-lined alleyways or snickets. So both sides of the walk back onto spaces that can be easily moved through. Terence was 75 at the time, and I'm guessing like many men of his age, prone to waking up in the night. He says that on this particular night, he got up and headed to the bathroom. It was clearly a bathroom without frosted glass in the window because as he looked out, he saw what he described as a lynx-like cat leap onto his shed roof. And this is what he told the newspaper in his own words. I saw a movement and thought it was an ordinary cat at first, but it jumped up on the shed roof stood facing the light. Its eyes were lit up like headlights. And I was amazed because it had got a very small face and two big ears that stood vertically upright and were pointed at the top. Now, it's easy to dismiss a late night sighting like this, put it down to being half asleep. An actual local pet cat might appear the size of a lynx when you're drowsy, it's harder to judge perspective with sleep blurring your vision. Except Terence says he was wide awake and he wasn't the only person to report seeing this large cat in Biggleswade on that week in 2005. Another independent eyewitness had come forward to the newspaper from Windermere Drive, further south in the town, to say that they had seen this beast as well. And these two independent witnesses would not be the last to see a large cat in the area. Welcome to Weird in the Wade, where in this episode we will be exploring big cat sightings around Biggleswade from the last 20 years. I've spoken with two eyewitnesses and you'll hear an interview with one of them. We'll widen our search to other Bedfordshire big cat sightings and to one that I was caught up in down in Sydenham, South East London, back in 2005 as well. I've also got a very special guest, Owen Staten, who is going to share his unique insight into big cat sightings as we discuss why we respond to these stories so positively. Many of you will know Owen from his Time Between Times and Spectres of the Sea podcasts. But did you know he has connections with at least two big cat sightings in Wales? All will be revealed. And finally, Bedfordshire doesn't just have alleged corporeal beasts stalking its fields and waterways. Bedfordshire also has some phantom felines. I'm Nat Doig, and welcome to this episode of Weird in the Wade. Big Cats of Biggleswade and Phantom Felines. For as long as I can remember, there have been news stories about sightings of non-native big cats in the UK. And I should say for my non-British listeners, we don't have any native large cats over here. 
We have a tiny threatened population of Scottish wildcats up in the highlands of Scotland where they are threatened by habitat encroachment and interbreeding with domestic cats. Scottish wildcats are not much bigger than a domestic cat and incredibly difficult to find in the wild. So any sightings of a large cat is going to be non-native to the British Isles. Big cat sightings seem to really take off in the UK in the 1970s and 80s and since then it's like every year or so there will be a new major sighting. A blurry photograph will do the rounds in the usual newspapers and on their websites. It's become such a thing in the UK that a website specialising in funny stories from local newspapers has its own meme of just posting the word cat as in domestic cat, whenever a sighting of anything like this is reported. Tourists say they photograph the Loch Ness Monster. Cat will be the refrain. It's one of those topics that divides people. Those who say the whole thing is manufactured by the newspapers to sell copies and generate clicks, especially during the quiet summer months. Then there are those who ardently believe that there are big cats living largely unobserved and unobtrusively in the UK countryside. The explanation for their existence is that they escaped or were released by former owners. There is a small minority who cling to the belief that these cats are in fact some remnant of a prehistoric big cat native to the British Isles, but we're straying into cryptid territory there. Which leads me on to a couple more things to explain for non-UK listeners before I get to the witness interviews. Many of the big cat sightings we're going to explore today take place in the southeast of England, where there is very little wild countryside left. In fact, most of the countryside is completely managed in the sense that it's either farmer's fields or parkland. However, when you look at where clusters of sightings take place, they do tend to be on the fringes of settlements and the few wilder areas in the southeast that remain. For example, the Chiltern Hills has a cluster of sightings, which includes Bedfordshire, even though on our side of Bedfordshire, we're quite far from those hills and wild woods. It's about 30 miles away to the edge of the Chilterns from Biggleswade. Other sightings further afield are associated with the UK's wilder open spaces like the moors. The beasts of Bodmin, Dartmoor and Exmoor in the southwest are examples. But these open spaces are small and contained in comparison to, say, the Welsh mountains and valleys or the highlands of Scotland. And they're tiny in comparison to the open spaces in places like North America or Australia. Saying all that, even in the southeast of England, with its suburbs and commuter towns orbiting around London, there are plenty of green corridors, fields, scrubby wasteland, railway sidings, small woods and rivers that could be used to travel along and are used by suburban foxes and other animals nightly. And here's the second thing I need to explain about the UK. The law around owning exotic animals is pretty strict. We're never going to have a UK Tiger King. There isn't the space for one thing and the law just doesn't allow it. It's just not possible, not legally anyway. It wasn't always so strict though, especially if you were wealthy. 
There are tales of country estates in the first half of the 20th century where big cats wandered the houses like Labradors. Keeping exotic animals was completely legal until the late 1970s and it wasn't just big cats. The 19th century Baron Walter Rothschild was famous for having a carriage pulled by zebras. He had a fine menagerie of exotic creatures and collected all kinds of specimens which now form the Natural History Museum Tring. But in 1976 the law changed and people owning non-native exotic animals had to have a license and prove that they could maintain standards of animal welfare. They would be inspected by the local authorities to ensure this. This added bureaucracy and increase in welfare standards led in theory to some owners releasing their former pets into the countryside rather than handing them over to a zoo or wildlife centre. In fact, it was legal to release big cats into the countryside until 1981 because there was no law saying you couldn't. So during the late 70s and 80s, it was assumed that credible witness sightings of panthers and pumas were of genuine big cats who had been set loose. And when in 1980, a puma was captured by a farmer in the Highlands of Scotland, and it turned out that this puma was tame and was so well fed it was obese. It was decided that this was an illegal big cat who had been kept as a pet and had either escaped or been released into the wild. She went on to live a happy life in the Highland Wildlife Park and you can read about her on the blog in the show notes. But a big cat's lifespan is no more than 15 years usually. 20 would be really pushing it. So shouldn't these big cats released in the late 70s and early 80s as the law changed be dead by the 1990s? Hold that thought because we'll be coming back to that later in the show. We will investigate where recent big cats may have come from. But let's look at Biggleswade's most recent big cat sightings. Penny got in touch with me earlier this summer after listening to the show. She wondered if I was going to do an episode about big cat sightings. I do mention the big cat of Biggleswade in my intro after all. At that point, I thought the only sightings were from 2005 and I wasn't sure if I could build a whole episode around them. But Penny told me that she had seen something large and cat-like less than a decade ago. Of course, I wanted to know more and Penny very kindly agreed to meet with me and to be recorded for the podcast. I cannot stress enough what a brave thing it is to do to open up to a complete stranger about something that you've seen, especially when you know that others may not believe you or to share an experience that many will make light of or see as a bit of fun. So I am really grateful that Penny agreed to speak with me and to trust me with this story. We met at Jones's coffee shop, the site of the haunted pound stretcher, it did seem appropriate, on a dull August morning. Penny was dressed all in black. She has fair hair and a really warm and welcoming smile. She ordered Earl Grey tea whilst I drank coffee. She has a responsible job and a very down-to-earth manner. She struck me as the kind of person you'd want with you if you did come across a big cat or even Bigfoot in the wild. 
she's not the kind of person to panic. After chatting at the cafe, we decided to head down nearer to the river and the site of her sighting to record her account. You'll be able to hear the A1 traffic in the background in the recording, even though we were sitting at a picnic area by the river. So here's what Penny told me. Yeah, so I was walking down by the River Ivel um, from Sainsbury's direction towards the direction of Ivel Mill. Um, I was walking my Greyhound. Um, this is probably about eight years ago, around about 2015. Um, my Greyhound was off the lead, as she often was. She was sort of pootling around in the field doing her own thing. Um, she often used to run round, zoom as they're called, she used to run round and round me, but on this occasion, um, very out of character, she suddenly shot at great speed, because she was a greyhound, uh, across the field towards the other side of the field in the direction of the A1. Um, so obviously I looked to see what had caught her attention and I saw, although it was some distance off, it was very definitely a cat and it was very definitely not a domestic cat. Um, which is what she'd seen. Um, she chased it. It was moving quite fast. Um, she would have caught it, but luckily it had quite a good head start um, because if she had have caught it, I don't think it would have ended well for her. Um, so she chased it into the, the bushes and the, the cat disappeared uh, into the hedge um, and must have gone into the next field towards the A1. Um, it was kind of, I seem to remember, I can't remember its exact markings, but it was definitely brownish, mid to dark brown in colour. Um, it had quite a thick tail, um, not as bushy as a fox's, but a, quite a thick tail and a, a longish tail. Um, yeah, and then once the cat had disappeared into the hedge, she realised she couldn't get it, lost interest and came back again, <laughs> luckily. And have you tried to look into what kind of cat it was? I have, yeah. I, I, so I've looked at wild cats because I wondered if it could be a wild cat and it, it didn't seem to look like a wild cat. Um, I've looked at lynxes. doesn't didn't really look like a lynx either. Um, it's not your traditional big cat sighting, obviously, of a, a black panther or something that could have escaped from a zoo. Um, I also wondered whether it could have been a, a Maine Coon because they're obviously quite big, but it was it was much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, so I haven't been able, to, I haven't researched it a huge amount, but I haven't been able to identify what I think I saw um, that day. So I've just said goodbye to Penny. Um, she's heading home now. And I'm just sheltering because it's very windy today. Um, you can probably hear that in the, the grass and the, the trees, but I'm sheltering in a little bush. And in fact, it's the bush that Penny used as her marker for working out where she was when she saw the big cat. And I just wanted to give you a lay of the land, uh, an idea of what it looks like here. So we're walking along the River Ivel in Biggleswade, and there's a, a, a small gravel path along the side of the river. And then you've got what were, and still are, water meadows. So they're kept free of crops. They just have long grass and scrubby uh, bushes in them. Uh, they're quite open. In fact, on a very sunny, dry day, it can look not unlike the African savannah here. And 
uh, as you're looking across those fields, uh, the water meadows, you're looking towards a line of trees and bushes that go alongside the A1. So on a day like today, it's actually quite overcast, so it does not <laughs> resemble in any way the uh, African savannah. But we've got wildflowers, there's cow parsley, daisies, ragwort, um, beautiful purple um, geraniums, and then the long sweeping grass. Now it would have looked different in the spring when Penny was here. The grass would have been much shorter. In fact, sometimes they plough it. Um, they plough over the land here. Um, they graze cattle on, this, on these water meadows as they would have done traditionally in the past. So yeah, it's an interesting landscape and it's an interesting place to see a big cat. Now, if any of you are thinking, and I don't blame you, well, hang on, that cat ran towards the A1. Surely if we've got a big cat living here, near the A1, it's going to get run over on the A1 at some point. Um, sadly, quite a few domestic cats get hit on the A1. But there are cow tunnels that go under the A1, and they go under the A1 from not far from here. And so there are routes that the wildlife can take to get under the A1 without having to get over it. So if there was a big cat, on the loose around Biggleswade and the sort of surrounding area, it has got a way of getting over the A1 without having to cross the road. After interviewing Penny, I reached out to see if anyone else had experience of seeing a big cat in or around Biggleswade, and Sam came forward. Sam has asked for their identity to be kept anonymous, so Sam is a pseudonym but I can confirm that I have met them face to face and spoken with them about the incident. They are a sensible person with experience of wild cats in other countries around the world, which is really lucky for us. They also were not alone when they saw this big cat, so have corroboration for their encounter. Here's what Sam told me, as close to their own words as possible. The encounter happened around 2012, I think. It was about this time of year, late summer, moving into autumn, we were at the RSPB Lodge. Now, just an aside here about the RSPB Lodge, this is the headquarters for the Bird and Nature Conservation Charity, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Their offices are in an old 19th century lodge or stately home to you and me. It was previously the home of Robert Peel, he of setting up the Metropolitan Police fame. Around this lodge, there are acres of heath and woodland stretching down to Biggleswade Common. It is a lovely place to walk and just take in the nature. But back to Sam's encounter. It's dusk, remember, but not dark. What Owen Staten, who we'll be speaking to later, calls the time between times. Sam said, It was actually seen from two completely different directions. I was walking out of the woodland track next to the RSPB driveway from the lodge, walking up from the south. My wife was in the gatehouse car park, waiting to pick me up to the north. The cat ran out of the heathland on the east, crossed the road and pathway between us, jumped onto a fence post, then down into the heathland on the western side and disappeared. It was incredibly quick. And when it jumped, it stood about the height of the fence post. So big, my torso height. I was immediately reminded of an ocelot. 
It could have been an African or Asian wildcat, but it had that quite distinctive, skinny, long-legged look of an ocelot or serval. And it had a long tail too, which was in addition to the height it stood. When I got into the car, we both looked at each other and I said, did you see that? And my wife said, yes. And I said, what was it? And she said, I don't know, but it was big. It was definitely not a lynx, mountain lion, panther, nor leopard, no tufty ears, no bulky body shape. I'm really grateful to Sam for sharing their story. It's a real head scratcher. Sam and his wife are definitely credible witnesses. Sam has experience of seeing actual big cats in the wild in other countries where they lived for some time. I've walked around the RSPB Lodge Reserve many times and I can imagine that a big cat could stay largely hidden up there but still find plenty to eat. There are rabbits. And we're not talking a panther-sized cat here preying on sheep. Another thing to consider is that the Lodge Reserve leads down to the common which in turn leads down to the water meadows where Penny saw her cat. So what's going on in Biggleswade? Let's look at 2005. I'm afraid we don't really have enough information about the 2005 sightings to investigate in detail. You can't even find the actual newspaper reports anymore. It's been taken offline when the Biggleswade Chronicle was bought up by one of the big media companies that now owns most local newspapers in the UK. I've seen a transcript of the article that still exists and I did read the article when it was still available back in 2010 when we moved back to Biggleswade. Yes, even back then I was googling weird and wonderful local stuff. But 2005 was a curious year for big cat sightings. There were loads of them from all over the country and it all kicked off in the march, far away from Biggleswade but not far from where I was living at the time in South East London. Within about 10 minutes walk of my old flat in leafy Forest Hill is Sydenham. And one morning in March 2005, there was a real commotion as the police closed off roads and went hunting for a big cat that had actually mauled a local man in the small hours of the morning. It made the national news a local girls' school kept its gates locked all day as the search continued. Some of the roads initially closed linked to the road that I lived on. It was really that close by. The man mauled by the cat, which he said was the size of a Labrador, was a father of three named Tony. He said he had been rescuing his own pet cat, Kit Kat, from the jaws of this beast when it attacked him. He actually needed treatment for cuts to his face and his hands and he and the paramedics treating him even thought that they caught a glimpse of this panther-like creature later whilst he was being patched up. The fear in the local neighbourhood was real. We could feel the tension when we spoke to neighbours. I kept my little cat Rookie indoors until the incident blew over and I moved house to the other side of Sydenham to Bromley about a week or so later. It's probably why the story sticks in my mind so clearly, because it all happened whilst I was preparing to move house. 
But this tale seems to have set off something in the national consciousness because then throughout the rest of the year there were more and more sightings of cats, not around Sydenham and London, but across the whole country. Was it some kind of mass panic? It's a well-known effect that when a sighting like this makes the headlines, others will follow. It can be for a couple of reasons. Those who hitherto thought they'd not be believed may decide now that it's safe to come forward with recent experiences and anyone else who does see a big cat after this initial story may be more likely to come forward because they feel it's safe to do so. But there's also something else at play here, something that in other situations can take a more worrying or sinister turn and that's when sightings or experiences become almost contagious. Think of the killer clown craze from back in 2016. There were some genuine sightings of people in clown costumes around the UK that autumn. In fact, the Northampton clown had been a thing for a while. The Northampton clown would probably make a good episode. I'll post some info on the blog. But as often is the case though, the sighting started in America and seemed to spread via the internet. Suddenly, in the autumn of 2016, UK school children were seeing these clowns everywhere, lurking by school playing fields on their way home from school. It meant that some schools were put on lockdowns when kids screamed that there was a clown in the playground. And I'm not exaggerating here. I remember being in a meeting at work and one of my colleagues phone rang because her child's school had just been put on lockdown because of quote, killer clown hysteria. And of course, more people thought it would be funny to dress up as clowns and scare people. And so it just snowballed. Bickleswade was not immune to killer clown sightings. It was reported that there was one hanging around outside the co-op. But eventually the craze died down. Maybe all the sightings in 2005 have an element of this contagion. Often these kinds of contagious sightings are not quite as they seem though. In the summer of 2012, whilst the excitement of the London Olympics and Paralympics were consuming most people's time, there was a big cat scare in Essex. The police went on the hunt for an escaped lion. News reports at the time had headlines like Lion on the Loose in Essex or Arm Police Search for Lion. After a couple of days, the search was called off. The police claimed that there were doctored photographs being shared on social media, which was just confusing everyone. And one woman came forward claiming that her pet cat, Teddy, had caused all the panic. But there was no definitive answer. Was it a hoax, a genuine mistake, or an actual big cat? Maybe a combination of all three. It was about six weeks later that newspapers in Bedford and across the country ran a story that there had been two sightings of a lion in a residential area of Bedford and that the police had been called out to investigate. It was like Essex all over again, except this time the police were very quick in issuing a statement that said, There is no ongoing incident involving a lion. Interestingly, despite the headlines, when you read the description that the women gave of what they saw in Bedford, 
It doesn't sound like a lion at all. It sounds like a creature larger than a domestic cat, but not huge. Not a roaring lion with a mane, but a large orangey-brown cat. Maybe another Teddy the Tomcat, but I think it sounds a lot like the cat that Penny saw, and maybe what Sam saw too. It's the newspaper that ran with the lion headline. They linked it back to the Essex case. It's in the nation's consciousness, and so they exploit it. Saying it's a lion will generate more clicks. The women may have come forward because it's only six weeks after the Essex case, but at no point are they quoted in saying that what they saw was a lion. So in this case, it's the newspapers forcing the lion onto the sighting. Any panic experienced in Bedford at the time has really been manufactured by the newspaper, though one of the women does say that her dog was scared of the creature and was left trembling, and she says that she's going to avoid that area in the future. So I believe these women saw something, but not a roaring lion with a mane, and the newspaper just exploited the situation to increase circulation. Which leads me on nicely to my theory about the later sightings in Biggleswade by Penny and Sam. Since her encounter, Penny has spent a lot of time looking into what she saw, trying to find an example online. She couldn't quite find what it was she saw. And even when she searched the usual suspects, pumas, lynx, panthers, even ocelots, they just didn't look right. I too, like Penny, spent a long time searching the net for images of cats that might meet Penny's description. And that's when I stumbled across a type of cat called a jungle cat, or swamp cat, or sometimes a reed cat. And I'm going to say this now. I think this jungle cat may well be what Penny saw. It's a misleading name, as it's a cat that lives across most of southern Asia, including all the Indian subcontinent except for the Himalayas. So it's not confined to jungles, though it does like water. Because its habitat is being destroyed by human activity, it's moving to live and hunt on farmland and suburban settings in India especially. It's a long-legged, long-bodied cat with pointy ears which sometimes do have tufts. It's larger than a domestic cat and it can weigh three times as much as one. Its coat ranges from beige to reddish brown. It has a long tail that can be bushy and it's ringed. Younger cats sometimes have dark patches on their coat, which fade with age. They are a beautiful looking cat. I've watched film of them stalking through crop fields in India, and the drone footage gives you a really good idea of just how big they are. There is a link to the video in the notes on the blog, as always. They are bigger than a pet cat, even a big tom. And crucially, jungle cats have been found in the UK countryside twice as it happens. The first time was back in 1988 in Hailing Island, Hampshire. The poor creature was run over by a car and then subsequently stuffed and kept in a zoological collection at the Museum of Hampshire. So you can go along and see the Hailing Island jungle cat. A year later, another jungle cat was found, this time over in Shropshire, so nowhere near Hampshire. 
It too had been run over by the looks of its injuries and it had died as a result. This Ludlow jungle cat was also stuffed by a local vet who identified it as a jungle cat. It turns out that there have been other sightings of jungle cats in the UK. One was in Durham in 1992. There have also been subsequent sightings in both Ludlow and Hailing Island. There are also claims backed up by vets of jungle cats breeding with domestic cats. In Shropshire, one large grey tom became quite a local star for being a hybrid. In fact, crossing jungle cats and domestic cats is a thing in the cat world and the offspring of these breeding programmes are called Chelsea's and have been recognised as a separate breed since the mid-1990s. I found a breeder with a licence for exotic cats offering jungle cat offspring called cubs for sale in the UK to suitably licensed people on a cat breeder's website this August. It's all completely legitimate and legal. Not the domesticated Chelsea's, but this was an actual jungle cat cubs for sale. And bear in mind that experiments with breeding jungle cats and domestic cats began in the 1960s and 70s before there was any need for exotic pet licenses. Nowadays, Chelsea kittens cost anything between £800 and £2,000 each to buy from a breeder, though I have seen higher prices quoted. Now, a Chelsea cat will be at least four generations removed from the original jungle cat, but even so, they're lively, intelligent and demanding pets, not the sort of cat that can be left to do their own thing and just sleep away the day. Some Chelsea's may also need to eat a meat-only diet, as in no pre-packaged cat food. So if the actual domesticated near relatives of the jungle cat are high maintenance pets, it's easy to imagine how intense it must be to look after an actual jungle cat and its cubs, which makes it easier to understand why sometimes these cats could either escape or are released, especially if ill-prepared or unscrupulous people get in on the act of breeding to make a profit. In April 2020, the UK strengthened the law banning third parties exploiting and mistreating animals by breeding them in awful conditions in what are known as kitten or puppy mills. Lucy's law means that now in the UK, if you want a puppy or a kitten, your choices are to go to an animal rescue or to a breeder directly, where the breeder must provide you with evidence of the welfare of the kittens or puppies and their mothers. The fact that a law like this is needed shows how much money the unscrupulous can make from selling kittens. And I am sure that bad practices persist if money can be made. I say all this just as an illustration that the idea of jungle cats being kept and released into the wild isn't a fanciful one when you consider the wider context of animals being exploited for greed when it comes to breeding them. And this kind of illicit and illegal breeding runs from horrible kitten mills selling poorly and neglected kittens for a few hundred pounds to those specialising in supplying ultra expensive, exotic and illegal pets. But back to the jungle cats. If there are some loose in the UK, the habitat where both Penny and Sam's encounters occurred 
are perfect hunting spots for jungle cats who feed on small rodents, rabbits and hares. I really do think that around Biggleswade and maybe further afield in Bedfordshire, there is at least one jungle cat living or was living out in the wild. I was keen to get a different perspective on the big cat sightings, a more folkloric take. And I thought, who better to ask than the wonderful Welsh storyteller Owen Staten? I cheekily asked Owen to introduce himself when I met with him over Zoom a couple of weeks ago. But if you don't know Owen, he has two brilliant podcasts. One is Time Between Times, where he tells old myths, legends and stories from around Wales and further afield. The tales and his delivery are dramatic, yet strangely hypnotic and meditative. He does mindful listens also, which really do take you on a journey to somewhere new, but also strangely familiar. His other podcast is a collaboration with Bethan Briggs Miller of Eerie Essex fame. Together they weave a running narrative over many episodes exploring the coast of Wales through stories and folklore. Links to both podcasts are in the show description and blog. So fresh from his summer holidays, Owen met with me around the time between times on a Tuesday evening to talk big cats and here's what he had to say. My name is Owen Staten, and I am a storyteller, as you know, and the host of Time Between Times podcast, which is on YouTube and everywhere you find your podcasts, which has been going for a number of years now. And um, I'm a storyteller who specialises in Welsh myths and ghost stories and spooky tales, if you like. It's something I've always done to a certain degree. Um, I've been lucky enough to be an actor as well and appear in lots of different things. But the vast majority of my life, 20 years, well, not the vast majority, actually, now less than half, but 20 years of my life I spent as a police officer as well. So I've had a lot of time sort of around and about looking at different things and coming across things that were quite strange, and quite unusual. Bet. I bet being a policeman, you do come across some very, very strange things sometimes. Um Thank you for that introduction and thank you also, Owen, for agreeing to join us today to talk to us about big cats and not just big Mm. cats, but shall we call them sort of non-native British cats that appear in the wild? Because sometimes Mm. they're not big. They're not like a panther Mm. or a tiger or a lion. (laughs) Sometimes Mm. they're just cats that are slightly bigger than a domestic cat, but clearly shouldn't be where they are. (laughs) Um, And I was wondering if you'd got any encounters yourself that you'd come across with cats, big, small, but cats that probably shouldn't have been where they were. Well, it's funny you ask that, Nat, because throughout my life, I have sort of paralleled sort of big cat sightings. I have seen a strange cat myself. I wouldn't say it was a big cat. Um, I've sent you a photograph and we'll talk about that a bit later on. But um, I came across a strange cat when I was out walking my dog. But all throughout my life, rather strangely, um, I've been involved in sort of big cat sightings, if you like. The earliest one being when I was at school. And I was at school in a, in a small village called Pontry de Venn. 
which is famous for a lot of things because it is famous. Yeah, Richard Burton was born there. Um, Ivor Emanuel was born there for any people who were fans of Zulu. Um, and it's just up the road from where Anthony Hopkins was born. So it's got quite a real pedigree of uh, sort of artistic pleasure. Rebecca Evans, a world-class soprano, was also born there. And my dad was born there. <laughs> and um, I went to school in a small Welsh school in Pontre de Ven, And that was a little primary school with about 150 people um, split over two schools, an English language school and a Welsh language school. And I was in the Welsh school. And this must have been about 1981, 82, perhaps maybe 1980. And there was a rush of sightings in the Pontre de Ven, Ton Mawr area, which is the next village up from Pontre de Ven, of a big cat um, called the Beast of Ton Mawr. And it became known as that, and it was all over the news, all over the local news, all over the Welsh news, and people would daily come into the school, teachers um, and people from the community, and speak about seeing this big cat. And naturally, we became quite frightened, but we always thought it was nothing more than a story, nothing more than a myth, nothing more than people were making up and, 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 and pretending to see this thing. But I can clearly remember that they stopped us going outside at break time, purely because they were afraid of this cat. And the, and the school was nestled into the side of the mountain. If you ever go, or if you Google Pontre de Ven, you'll see these photographs of beautiful viaducts and aqueducts. And um, they go through like a forested area where there's old mine works and full of, you know, caves and that sort of thing. And it was very easy, as I often did, to basically jump over the wall and hide in the woods there. And... Um, but I can remember we went through a phase where we were basically locked down inside the school because of the beast of Ton Maur. And if you have a look at the internet today, there's very little about those sightings in the early 80s. And there's a lot of things about sightings later on in the 90s, in the 2000s, both in Ton Maur, in Pontre de Ven and nearby Margam, which is only a hill away from that area as well, of a creature that was very much like an ocelot. And although I never saw this creature... It's always been there in my mind. It's always been there that what could have been or what it was or how close was I to it. And um, a lot of people in that area still talk about it, which is strange. Yeah, I've got another one then. Is yeah. uh, As I said, said in my introduction there, I spent 20 years as a police officer. And most of that was spent in the wilds of Mid Wales, which is, you know, if there's a wild part of Britain, it's there. It truly is quite uh, a remarkable and amazing part of, part of, uh, of Wales. And I had a really strange call. I used to work in the town of Brecon when I first started. And Brecon, for those of you who don't know, is a small farming town in, in Mid Wales. And there's lots of outlying villages, as well as the famous town of Hay on Wye, which is a, um, known as the town of Bucks. And uh, one night I was out um, with a colleague in, in the car and a call came through on the radio basically saying, would you go to the Three Cocks Hotel, which is like a pub in the village, unfortunately titled Three Cocks, and um, the uh, uh, which is a lovely little hotel, lovely little village. And this is going back about 20 years ago now. And um, there's a lady there who wants to speak to you, but you won't exactly say what it's about. So intrigued. And uh, this sort of thing happened 20 sort of years ago. We pulled up in at, outside the Three Cocks Hotel, which is, as I say, lovely sort of eatery hotel in the basically the middle of nowhere in a tiny village. And this woman rather animatedly, uh, animatedly comes out of the, um, the pub and sort of walks straight up to me and says, look down there. 
And down next to the pub, there's a lane that goes down, uh, surrounded by trees on each side. And there's a load of cars parked down there. And she says, see that there, the black car? That's my car. That's my car. But she's totally sober. And she says, "Here, I'm here with my friend and we've just had food and we'd finished and we were just going back to the car. And I walked down here. And as I got to the car door, I looked across and there in the bush behind the car was a panther. And I stalled and I stopped and I held the car door handle, she said. And the panther walked out of the bush and straight across the road behind the hotel. And I'm standing here in the dead of night with no gun, nothing like that, you know, a British police officer with my little, my little ass, my little baton and my gas thinking, oh, my God. And there were footprints around and we had a dog in and there was, you know, people sort of uh, smelt this this animal. Uh, but again, it was never seen. Or um, And when I got back to the station, I can remember there was an old sergeant there who had uh, worked in the area for many, many years. And um, he was a wealth of knowledge. And he basically said, yes, there's always been rumours of the beast of three cocks. So, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows what was there? But it... Uh, <laughs> really, really sort of frightened me. And, um, you know, I had to try and be brave. And I can remember my colleague holding on to my arm, you know, but we were both trying to be like sort of uh, brave about the whole thing. But she definitely saw something and um, something was definitely there. But what it was, we don't know. So, again, another one, you know, just there outside a pub, which yeah. was which was mad, really. That you had to investigate. I don't know if I'd, uh, I'd have been able to. Well, you I know, didn't do much investigating. Really. I just sort of, <laughs> I sort of backed off. I got in a car, basically ran off down the lane myself. I think, but yeah, <laughs> I didn't exactly do the old Scooby Doo with it. You know, so that was it. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because we live in a country where we don't have any large predators. We don't really have animals that we need to be afraid of if we're out walking in the mountains or the woods or the hills. Um, but there's something about the stories that I think we love as a as a nation and they come back year after year. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts as a storyteller, as someone who makes his living by telling stories, sharing stories, seeing people's faces as you tell these stories. What do you think it is about these big cats that just why why do they keep coming back, these stories? Why do we want to share them? I think with the big cat, it's something special, isn't it? Right. And as you said, we live in a country where um, big animals like that are not the norm. Yeah. So when somebody tells you they've seen a big cat, it's different, but also believable. So if I tell you I've just had an encounter with Bigfoot or an alien <laughs> or a ghost, you are probably met with a certain amount of scepticism. But with a big cat in the sort of in the norm, in the in the in the um, uh, in the community, that's seen as strange, but believable. So therefore, I think sometimes people will see these things and perhaps people who will blank a ghost, essentially, they'll walk past and just, you know, <laughs> not even see it, but they will acknowledge the big cat. And that to them is exciting. And yes, they are believable. And yes, they, there is good evidence that they are actually out there. So I think they're very different. They're quite scary because... You know, they could be, like you say, just like a large domestic animal, or it could be something big enough to bite your head off. So people are always quite scared. Um, Beth and Briggs Miller, who does the Spectre of the Sea podcast mm. with myself, um, has got a really good big cat uh, story, which I won't tell you now, but it was essentially no. um, 
you know, something savage in local animals that uh, she almost came across sort of face to face. And these things are out there and, and they provide good stories that are not that weird. So people see them, yeah. people acknowledge them, but are not ashamed to actually tell the story because you find a lot of people with um, ghostly experiences, etc., will probably keep it to themselves. But if you've seen a big cat, you know, I could tell you without losing face, you know, and so there's yeah. a lot of that as well, which is kind of strange. One of the things, and, I, and I'm sorry, because I'm going to throw this one at you now, but one of the other stories that I'm going to finish the show with is about a ghost cat. And it's um, something that I'm just curious about anyway, uh, just in general, because I know a lot of people do see ghostly or spectral animals from time to time, whether it's a pet that's passed away. Um, and I just wondered if, particularly cats, not other animals, but have you come across any stories that are of ghost cats or phantom felines? I believe there's loads of stories about phantom felines. And I actually, the story I'll tell you is actually a good one because I saw it myself. Now, um, it was only about a year ago. And there isn't much to this story, just mm -hmm. like there is to a, you know, a lot of ghost stories, really. But I've got a bit of a routine, right, that I, I suppose a lot of us have got, is where um, at the end of the night, when I'm getting ready for bed, I take the dog out the garden to have a wee. Um, I wait, we walk around to make sure everything's locked up. I've got like a conservatory at the back of the house. And we live in like quite a wooded area. And I think I've talked about this before, but where I live is where there used to be a wildlife garden. It's called Penskana Wildlife Park. Wow. So my garden is actually the old flamingo go enclosure for Penskana Wildlife Park, right? So I'm giving away where I live now. But, um, and there's a woodland walk just behind my house. But, um, and we lock up, you know, and, and I go about my little nighttime routine, which I probably do, you know, more often than not, exactly the same every night, even though I try not to be a creature of habit. I, I am a massive creature of habit. And one of the final things I do is I walk out onto my drive and I check to make sure the cars are locked. And about a year ago, I stepped out onto the front drive and tried the handle on uh, on my car and it was locked and my cat was sitting on top of the car and I sort of acknowledged it looked around tried the other car which was also locked mm -hmm. and out of the corner of my eye I saw my cat jump from the top of the car down to the bonnet of the car mm -hmm. which the cat would sometimes do and follow me into the house mm -hmm. but I saw it out the corner of my eye and I turned my head and it wasn't there it was definitely on the top of the car. It was like a black silhouetted cat. Mm -hmm. Now, I've got a black and white cat, so I'm saying it's my cat. It was definitely a black cat. And it definitely sat on the top of my car and definitely jumped to the bonnet. Didn't make a sound, which probably caused me to look a bit more than I did. Mm -hmm. And then I'd totally gone. And then Sad. I went in the house. Yeah, I went into the house and my cat was actually upstairs on the bed. So fast asleep and oblivious to it all. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I've talked about it before. I think I've seen, I think it's six ghosts in my life now. Mm -hmm. And um, I still don't know if I believe in ghosts, but that was definitely a strange experience. Yeah. So, yeah, it happened to me. Oh, thank you so much. Thank right. you so much for sharing those stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just it's it's great to 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 talk to you to have a perspective from a totally different part of the country from from where we are in in uh, in Biggleswood Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Mm. So thank you so much, Owen. This seems as good a place to pause our conversation with Owen to tell you the story of the 
Bedford Ghost Cat. It's a short story that's scant on detail, but I think maybe a familiar one to many. This haunting happened in a pub, and it's a pub that has had many names, as many as a cat's nine lives, though sadly it's currently sitting empty waiting to be resurrected once again. In the last 20 or so years, this pub has been known as The Bull-Nosed Bat, The Square, Capasa, The Chameleon, which seems appropriate for a place that kept changing, and finally, Vodka Live. I don't think that list is in order, though it definitely shut as Vodka Live during the pandemic and is yet to reopen. The bar is in the historic St Paul's Square in Bedford, facing the courts and the old St Paul's Church. It's next door but one to the old Corn Exchange, but this pub is small and unassuming. In its current shutdown state, it looks sad, obscured by a busy bus stop in front of it. But the top half of the building is decorated rather oddly. I can't decide if the decoration is supposed to be flames, tiger stripes or lizard skin, maybe left over from when it was the chameleon. Either way, it makes a rather unremarkable building look quite odd. The haunting took place inside the pub when it was known as the square, but I've also read that it happened when it was the bull-nosed bat. Maybe the haunting just kept happening. Either way, the person living in the flat above the pub came home one night into their flat which had been locked tight all day, including all of the windows, to find a cat asleep on one of their living room chairs. Now, they didn't have a pet cat, so this was rather unexpected. As they approached the cat, obviously a little confused as to how it had got into a locked room, the curled up creature just disappeared into thin air. Although we only have this one report, for it to have made the Bedfordshire Library's collection of ghost stories and be reported more widely, I wonder if this wasn't in fact an isolated incident. I'm wondering if this phantom feline was a more regular visitor to this pub. That way it seems more likely that the story of multiple apparitions would have been told, remembered and repeated and so found its way into these ghost story collections. Maybe something happened in that pub to a person living there that was similar to what happened to me when I was staying in a hotel in Brighton a couple of years ago. I was lying in bed, listening to the sea crunch back and forth over the pebbles on the beach. It was one of those older hotels, a little out of the town centre, bagged a seafront room at a very reasonable price because of the pandemic. I needed to be in Brighton for work, but there were still quite a few restrictions in place around social mixing. The hotel was wonderfully quiet. Although I was lying in bed, I wasn't sleepy, and I was enjoying the peace and quiet when I felt the unmistakable sensation of a cat leap up onto the bed at my feet, turn around a couple of times, and flop down to sleep, just as my cat Kasumi does. So at first I wasn't alarmed, and then I realised that I was in a hotel and Kasumi was not with me. I think it was at the point when the cat was turning around that I realised that there shouldn't be a cat on my bed. I very slowly sat up, 
thinking that it must be a hotel cat that had snuck into my room. But there was nothing at the end of the bed. No cat. Nothing. No indentation where it should be lying. Just smooth white covers. You know how tight hotel beds are made up. My feet barely made a dent. I'll be honest, my heart did skip a few beats, but I wasn't terrified. I did keep the light on for a little bit longer, though. There's lots of logical explanations for this one. That the nerves in my leg misfired and I felt something that wasn't there. Who's heard of or experienced phantom mobile phone vibration where you think your mobile is vibrating, but it isn't? It is a known thing and it happens to lots of people, including me. Or maybe I was sleepier than I realised and I had drifted off and it was like that falling off the end of the bed sensation that you get when your mind and body aren't quite in sync and ready to sleep. So I fully admit that this was most likely just me feeling something that wasn't there. But part of me likes the thought of a phantom feline wanting to snuggle on the end of my bed for the night. It seems like a bit of a privilege for a ghost cat to grace you with their presence. Now, there is more of my conversation with Owen. We moved on to talk about other exotic animal sightings and then back to cats again. But I'm going to release that portion of our conversation as a bonus episode with other spooky cat-related tales in the next few weeks during October. So keep a lookout for that episode around Monday the 16th. I also have some exciting news about our Halloween special episode due out on the day before Halloween, Monday the 30th of October. I'll be covering what might just be Biggleswade's most haunted pub. Not only are there some fascinating and spine-chilling ghost stories associated with this pub, but I've tracked down two Victorian newspaper stories which seem to contain clues about the hauntings. There'll be a trailer available at the end of the bonus episode later in October. I want to say a really big thank you to Everyone who shared their stories with me for this episode, Penny, Sam and Owen, thank you for being so generous with your time. If you have a big cat sighting or a spooky cat related story that you'd like me to feature on the bonus episode, please do get in touch at weirdinthewade at gmail.com or you can get in touch on social media. You'll find Weird in the Wade on Blue Sky, Threads, Instagram, and we're still clinging on there at Twitter. I'd like to say a big warm thank you to all my followers on the socials for all your encouragement and good company. And a big shout out to Joe, who bought the podcast A Coffee over on Kofi. If you want to and are able to, you can buy the podcast a coffee like Joe did. All the money raised goes back into the podcast, whether it's buying equipment like the lav mic I used to record Penny's interview or the Earl Grey tea and coffee that we drank in the old haunted pound stretcher. There is a link to Kofi 
in the show description. But don't worry if you can't afford to buy the pod of coffee. I know times are really hard at the moment. The best way you can support the show is to like, follow and review wherever you listen or to just share it with friends and family. It really does generate more listeners. Don't forget to check out Owen's podcasts, Time Between Times and Spectre of the Sea. You've been listening to Weird in the Wade, which is researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. Our theme music is by Tess Savagir. Cat purrs and meows in today's show are by the podcat Kasumi and all additional music and sound effects are by Epidemic Sound.